The Thread is a new hit podcast from Ozzy Media that explores history's surprising connections in order to discover how one thing leads to another. Like how movie moguls in early Hollywood helped spark the Me Too movement today. Get it on iHeartRadio or wherever you listen. Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. Uh, but, you know, it's interesting because you were not the only celebrity in, obviously, in this uh, documentary that's on Netflix about this subject. But so was uh, Mel Brooks, who is most famous for playing off of the name Hedy Lamar with his character in Blazing Saddles. I thought right. that was an interesting choice, too, because he had a lot to say about her. He did. Um, she was a very uh, she was a very popular star. Um, she was at MGM. uh she had a, a very um, storied life when it came to her relationships with people like Louis Mayer at MGM yeah. and various agents uh, circling around MGM. MGM in the 1940s, and we're talking about this is the studio uh, of um, Judy Garland. This is the studio of Mickey Rooney, of Clark Gable, of William Powell. Um, it it was an exciting time in American motion picture history, in American motion picture history, from the 1930s when Mickey first broke into, or Mickey Rooney first broke into MGM, um, all the way through through the war, and then things changed after the war. But in that period of time, in the late 1930s through the early 1940s, um, MGM was one of the was the only studio making money during the Great Depression. Uh, Paramount, Warner Brothers, um, Fox, they were all losing money. They had to really struggle to survive. But MGM found a formula with younger stars, including people like Hedy Lamar, Judy Garland, Mickey Rooney. Um, they found a formula for reaching a brand new audience. And so when you're looking at American culture in, um, during the Depression, American entertainment culture during the Depression, what you see is the create. In fact, that's a motion picture that my partner and I are trying to push right now. What you're seeing is the creation of an entirely new demographic, an entertainment audience demographic in the United States that hadn't existed before. And two things created that demographic. Uh, uh, the Mickey Rooney, Andy Hardy movies, and uh, uh, Busby Berkeley. They're, uh, uh, today they're called backyard musicals, but it's Judy Garland, Mickey Rooney, and in, in movies like Babes in Arms, Strike Up the Band, Words and Music, Babes on Broadway. The uh, the premise was that going into the 1930s, early 30s, right at the time the Depression was ramping uh, was ramping down, ramping up. There was no such thing as a teenage market. Um, companies like MGM, were, um, who was run by Louis Mayer, but his boss was Nick Schenck on the East Coast, they were trafficking in basically adult films. They had Clark Gable, William Powell. They had these great adult film stars. When Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland came along, um, especially Mickey Rooney in the very beginning, there were teenagers who were going to see the Andy Hardy movies three and four times. And Louis Mayer thought that the whole Andy Hardy business would be like a B-movie, would be like a, a, a second feature in a double-feature bill. But there were so many teenagers and even older children 
going to see the Andy Hardy movies that um, Mayer and his, they call him Mayer's College of Cardinals, they realized they had tapped into a gold mine. So when Judy Garland came along in 1938, and she did You Made Me Love You, the song to Clark Gable, and audiences saw that, they went insane over her. And, and Mayer had the idea to, tame his, to, to team his two big teenage stars, Mickey was a teenager, Judy was a teenager, in a backyard musical, and he brought in Busby Berkeley, who came over from, I think, Warner Brothers. And th- that play, Babes in Arms, people were seeing that movie. It was a Broadway play in the 1920s. And people went to see Babes in Arms four and five times. It was mm-hmm. Nothing before. Those movies, Babes in Arms, Babes on Broadway, Words and Music, Struck Up the Band, those teenage musicals became the basis for musicals today, like uh, Forever Plaid, Hollywood Musical, Glee, musicals like that, teenage musicals. That's what these two invented. But beneath the surface, and Hedy Lamar was a part of this because she was already addicted to methamphetamines from Max Jacobson, all these young stars were given barbiturates at night to knock them out. Judy Garland was, um, to use a kind word, on the plump side, so she was given heavy methamphetamines for diet pills. And at night, they were given barbiturates to knock them out. And in the daytime, they were shot up with methamphetamine to let them work 12 and 14 hours a day. Hedy Lamar was in that group. And so... But she was, she wasn't, she wasn't in one sense. These movies on Netflix, these are drug-driven movies. Yeah, that's an, it's an interesting observation, and, and I was only interjecting to say that to a degree she was, but she also wasn't because, unlike, as I remember correctly from the documentary, is that she didn't do that nighttime thing where they went out all night and partied. Instead, she went home to her inventor's bench and was working on her on her hobby. She was much more interested in that than hitting the Hollywood scene and staying up all night, which I thought like, was Eddie fascinating. Eddie Lamar was a secret nerd. That's really yeah. what she was. Beautiful. She had been married a number of times. She had gone from being fabulously wealthy to fabulously broke. She was arrested for shoplifting in Los Angeles. And yet, all the time, she had this one passion which women, by and large, weren't allowed to have in the 1940s and 1950s. And that was, she was doing scientific inventions. Besides, it's funny, besides uh, spread-spectrum technology, which powers today's iPhones and Bluetooth, besides that, she also invented the idea, which she got from taking an Alka-Seltzer once, she also invented the idea of a soft drink, in a tablet, and they became fizzies. That was the yeah. that was the product in the fizzies. I, I I grew those. I grew up having fizzy. You, you it liked like Alka Seltzers, but you dropped them in a glass of ice water, and it became an instant pop until right. all the bubbles popped. Yeah. yeah, right, yeah, and that's what she invented. Uh, yeah. She she used it as she looked at how Alka Seltzer worked and said, "Gee, if I can put um, a sodium carbonate in this thing in 
a tablet, why can't I put a cherry flavored drink in that tablet? And she or Coca Cola, which is what Coke. I thought, which was an interesting thing that she still was interested about the troops. And she thought these poor guys somewhere, they'd probably love to have a Coke up along the front lines, but it's too hard to get them a bottle of Coke. But if they had water and one of these, you know, fizzy pills they could, they could drop in there, it would be like having a Coke in the middle of the war. That was the basis. That was the rationale for her developing the fizzy drink. That was exactly the rationale. That you didn't need to send bottles of soft drinks of soda pop over to, uh, to Europe. You just had to send these tablets. You can put them in the MREs, the meals ready to eat, and they would have a soft drink. Yeah. And I, I thought what was interesting was her relationship, again, and I'm really glad you brought up the Andy Rooney, sorry, the Mickey Rooney, Andy Hardy stuff and all that, other, because they really were famous, especially Judy Garland for being, you know, all over town and being photographed everywhere. And she was much more interested in hanging out with Howard Hughes and using his connections and his industries to see some of her inventions come to life. And that's, I mean, that's amazing. Who, that's you know, right. Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes was fascinated. First of all, he was a motion picture producer. So, A, he loved movie stars. B, he was fascinated with Hedy Lamarr's inventions. He was a, a, a techno- Howard Hughes was a very early technology entrepreneur, both um, in the aircraft industry, Hughes Aircraft, obviously, and uh, in motion pictures. And in um, things he could in things inventions he could finance, and he really loved Hedy Lamarr. Uh, he respected her um, as an intellectual, as an inventor. He really respected her as an inventor, as opposed to the Louis B. Mayers and the other studio heads who looked at the Hedy Lamars, the Marilyn Monroes, the Carol Lombards as basically property. I mean, yeah. Louis Mayer regarded his, he called him his stable of actors, his contract players at MGM, just the way Lubitsch did at Paramount and the way um, uh, Jack Warner did at Warner Brothers um, and Sam Goldwyn. They looked at them as chattel. We own their contracts. They work for us. And you could have uh, 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 your uh, contract players working from dawn until dusk, in, in some of the worst scripted motion pictures you can imagine, right. and they would have to do it. That's what Hetty had to do. That's why she made some great films. She made some weird films like Ecstasy and some really bad films toward the end of her career. Well, there's White Cargo. Yeah. <laughs> white, white Cargo is so awful. So, right. um, But how so- would Hughes... Yeah, the, talk about the wings. Explain the whole thing, like her impact on the wing design for Howard Hughes. She basically had this concept of um, what that would be, and Howard Hughes um, just embraced her ideas when it came to these things. I mean, she used that same George Antile technology, for example, of the punch card, of, of the punch roll, to control a device, um, she used that for her improved uh, uh, traffic light. She thought yeah. the traffic lights were were like um, they didn't work well. They, could they weren't work synced better. well, right? Yes, and so she used that for automatic traffic lights to improve them. 
But in that scientific method she used, I thought it was so fascinating about the way when Howard, here's Howard Hughes, right? I mean, he's the he's the aviator, the name of the movie, ergo. He's the guy who, who was the, she was a speed freak because of Dr. Feelgood, but he was a speed freak when it came to planes and he was just trying to go faster and faster. And she was the one who made the observation that the wings needed to spread back like the wings of the fastest flying birds and of the fastest swimming fish. Uh, and he didn't, he hadn't made that connection before. Hedy Lamar's the one that made that connection. Right. And, and that would not come to be, well, it, um, there was the B-36 bomber, which had a swept wing, it was a flying wing, but it was a swept wing design. But really, the first American fighter plane with swept wing was the F-86 Sabrejet, I believe, the F-86 Sabrejet, in, in combat in the Korean War. And that really proved Hetty's idea worked, because at the outset of the Korean War, well, the MiGs had a, a swept wing, but at the outset of the Korean War, um, we were losing planes to uh, the very superior MiGs at an, a very alarming rate. The, uh, the Russian MiGs controlled the airspace over, over the Koreas. It wasn't until we introduced, and this brings in a whole other great conspiracy theory, but it wasn't until we brought in the Sabrejet, the, uh, the swept wing F-86, that the kill rate between American fighters and Soviet fighters dramatically shifted, and it was at that point that the Sabrejet dominated the skies. It dominated the skies, along with its radar-controlled gun, which was used in the 1952 UFO invasion over Washington, D.C. That design was so important with, uh, with that radar-directed weapon that the Soviets and the Chinese would order uh, uh, MiGs to shoot down uh, American Sabre jets if they could. If the pilots survived the crash, most pilots did, what they would do is they would take the pilot as a POW back to the Soviet Union. This is the story of the Manchurian candidate. They take these pilots back to China and the Soviet Union where these pilots were uh, made to be convinced through conditioning that the United States had won the war. They were in an American hospital. They would wake up and see the American flag, and that they had lost their memory from the shootdown, and they had to go through a series of tests to recover their memory. Ugh. One of the tests they were made to go through was how did the radar-directed gun work? Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.